English 325. That on the podcast probably just blasts out your ears and then out the movie. Yeah. Second part of Mary Rawlinson's captivity narrative, you guys know, having maybe listened to the recording, or you will soon, that uh, on Monday we spent a good deal of time not only talking about kind of the contours of Puritan theology, which is something we also talked about on Friday with Bradford, um, we talked about that, but we also talked about what the captivity narrative does and what it is and what it accomplishes, right? So the historical genre type or kind of literature, um, why it's important, why we read one, what it's supposed to do. And the last thing on that slide from Monday that we talked about was this kind of more abstract or theoretical idea where we said that the captivity narrative as a genre is really invested, really interested in what we call the dividing line between us and them. Right? So the dividing line between settlers and native people and not just that dividing line, but also the porosity of that line. That is to say, how like that line is not stable, it's not watertight, but like what this genre shows us is that sometimes these two types of people that we think in this context to be radically distinct from one another are in fact quite similar. Sometimes it might even be better to be a native person than to be a settler. Uh, and that's kind of scary. That might provoke anxiety in readers, the idea that you could be aligned with or you could characterize yourself in a manner that is also uh, available to savages, right? to devilish people in the Puritan context. So we're going to talk about that by the end of class today. I just want to kind of like preload that idea into your head because that's going to come up in one of the questions that we talked through um, today in class. But again, Mary Rowlandson, a gun as big as her whole body. A gun as big as her whole body. She's just such a badass. Again, another woodcut that's being recycled in the late 18th century, uh, like we talked about on Monday. That hat that Mary is wearing, she would have never worn that hat, the tricorn hat. That's a late 18th century hat. This text is about the late 17th century. Crazy, anachronistic shit going on. The reason why, again, is that illustrators recycle images over and over and over again. And so this, at some point, was probably not Mary Robinson at all. This was probably some um, early American revolutionary, daughter of the American Revolution or something, that kind of idea. You can also see it in the flag down here, which like might be a Union Jack, but also might be like the flag of the 13 colonies. So just a kind of a small little point that I like to, to make light of. Um, every time we, we talk it through. But anyways, what about the first guiding question? So this is something we'll spend a little bit of time on. I've kind of put in the background of this image actually the map of Mary's journey, right? So she starts, where my, my light go? My laser pointer. Yeah, she starts here at 1, right, in Lancaster. And then she's taken out 2, and then 3 is behind this text. Up 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. She gets all the way to Chesterfield up in Vermont, actually. And then she goes all the way back, almost following the exact same track, all the way back, 17, 18 again, down in this text field, 19, 20, and then 21, and then she's redeemed as you, uh, well, spoiler alert, she's redeemed at the end, I guess. But that map shows you the removes. The numbers on here are um, where she is. So this is the first remove, this is the second, all through the text. So instead of removes, we have chapters. And the question that I asked you 
excuse me, instead of chapters, we have removes. And the question that I asked you was, why does Robinson, why does this book frame itself around removes, and what might different spaces represent for her and her readers? So let's read this first one and talk it through. Another way of asking this question is like, what's the importance of the landscape for Mary? What's the importance of actually the place that she's in? So she says, what, through faintness and soreness of body, it was a grievous day of travel to me. Grievous just means terrible. As we went along, I saw a place where English cattle had been. That was comfort to me, such as it was. Quickly after that, we came to an English path, which so took with me that I thought I could have freely lied down and died. What does the land signify here for Mary? What is she so interested or invested in seeing here? What makes her happy? Yeah. The English path. The English cattle and the English path. These two things, right, provoke some kind of feeling in Mary. Right? They provoke some kind of feeling in Mary. The feeling that they provoke in Mary when she sees an English path as opposed to a native one. Remember, she's like being kind of like pushed along through the wilderness by these native captors. They're probably using their own paths that have been there for generations, if not for centuries, right? But she sees an English path, a different path, a new one. One that is, she understands or identifies with her own people. And as a result of that, she says, I could freely lie down and die right here. What does that signify? What does that suggest to you about the importance that Mary is placing on particular landscapes? Literally or symbolically. Yeah. Like it's important for her to be close to like English settlements. Yeah. Good. Important why? I mean, well, I'm just asking everyone to speculate. Why is it important for Mary to be close to the English? Of course, it's important for her because that's her home and those are her people and she wants to be rescued. Right? But why would she say then that she could freely lie down and die? Right? Because that's not getting rescued, that's dying. So why does she say, I see something English. I would be happy to die. Is that a hand? Like, yeah. if she's, like, near an English path, like, she can be, like, she's, like, comfortable around that, but, like, the further she goes, like, the less she's likely to see, like, English settlements. And so, like, the hope of kind of returning probably is leaving her as well. Yes, absolutely the hope of returning is leaving her. So what happens here, this is kind of the second point that actually comes through really nicely in the second passage, too, is that what Mary is doing is she's mapping really quite explicitly onto the landscape, her feelings about um, whether she's going to be redeemed or whether she's not, also whether she is going to find salvation and whether she is not, right? But this first passage gives us a little more insight into what Mary thinks salvation is. Again, literally speaking, she says, I see an English path and I feel like I could lie down and die. That's a very different thought then I see an English path, and that means there must be English people around, which means I might get rescued. Why does she feel like she'd be happy to die when she sees an English path? Yeah. Could it be a form of patriotism? Kind of. Uh, patriotism is kind of a more modern concept, even for this time, but like, can you say a little bit more about what you mean? Because what I think of, like, lying down and dying for something you believe in. I, oh, I think of like people going to war and like people like fighting for what they believe in and where they're coming from. So cool. when I read that, I was like, 
maybe she's comparing it to like how she feels about the English cattle and the English pet, like that's what she would die for. That's cool, it gives her strength. It almost provides her with the kind of will to fight. Yeah, that's a nice way of thinking about like something you would die for, absolutely. Totally, so if we think about it in like, uh, Emma, you're putting it in kind of geopolitical terms. That's really interesting. What if we put it in religious terms? Yeah, for sure. Um, like, the longer she's around the Native Americans, like, the less she can, like, go to, like, practice the Sabbath because, like, they get mad at her when she, like, suggests that she takes the day off. Yeah. And, like, she can't read the Bible freely because um, her, like, master's wife, like, beats her for it. Yeah. So as she goes further and further along with the natives, but not just with the natives, as she goes further and further along into the wilderness, right, into native land, she gets further and further and further away from God. And as she gets further and further and further away from God, as Roshin is telling us, what she also gets further and further and further away from is the promise or the prospect of salvation. That is to say, of going to heaven. As she gets further away from English settlements and further into native land, she gets further away from God and further away from salvation. So when she sees an English path, what she understands, what makes her feel like she could lay down and die, is that she feels as if, if she's near the English, if she dies, she can find salvation. So what she's doing is she's mapping explicitly onto the land. Whether something is English or whether something is native, she's mapping explicitly onto the land the possibility or opportunity of dying and seeing God, of reaching heaven, of being saved. So when there's an English path or when there's English cattle, she has hope or the prospect of being saved. So what are we supposed to take from that, right? What are we supposed to take from this idea? What we're supposed to take, going back to what Roshin said, is that for Mary, her, the prospect or the possibility of being saved is mapped explicitly onto the land. When she's in native land, when she's in the wilderness, when there's no trappings of Englishness around her, she feels as if she's gone to the devil, of course, because she equates devils with native people, right? So when she's in native territory, when she's in the wilderness, when she has no English paths around here, she doesn't feel as if she will be saved. She doesn't feel as if she's among the elect. She doesn't feel as if she's in God's graces. Okay? When she sees something English, she feels as if she could die and be happy because the English thing equates to her as a blessing from God. If all of her actions and all of her experiences are manifestations of God's grace or censure, then seeing an English path is a blessing from God. If she is receiving blessings from God, that means she is saved. So that idea is really important here. But more generally speaking, this kind of gets to our second point, so I, won't, I guess I won't step on myself. We'll go to the second quote and then talk about it. So she says, One hill was so steep that I was fain, that means I could barely to creep up upon my knees, and to hold by the twigs and bushes to keep myself from falling backwards. My head also was so light that I usually reeled as I went, but I hope all these wearisome steps that I have taken are but a forewarning to me of the heavenly rest. I'm interested in the second half of this um, passage. 
But I hope all these wearisome steps that I have taken are but a forewarning to me of the heavenly rest. What is she equating here? She's equating physical steps with what? The physical steps are on one level just physical steps, but they're also evidence of what? Forewarning to me of heavenly rest. What does that mean? Kind of. It's a, it's a forewarning. It's a warning to her of heavenly rest. So it's a warning to her. It's a piece of evidence for her death. Right? But heavenly rest means something really particular. It's not just a physical death. It's also what? Back in line with what we talked about in the first passage. It's also death. a spiritual death, but also salvation. Right? A heavenly rest means that you are saved. Right? So... All of these steps that she's taking, all of these wearisome steps she's taking, she hopes that they are evidence for the fact that she will be saved. Okay? So the broader point to make here then is that Mary is undergoing not just a physical journey, she's also undergoing a spiritual one. Right? So on every remove, every time they pack up and leave and go somewhere else, Mary is perceiving that not only as a physical movement, She's also perceiving that as a spiritual movement, either towards God or away from God. Every time they have a remove, every time they leave, again, to reiterate this, Mary is perceiving of that movement not only in physical terms, she's also perceiving of it in spiritual terms. As she goes further into the forest, that means she's going further away from God, that means that she has less of a likelihood of being saved. Right? As she goes closer to the English, or she sees the trappings of English civilization, she understands that as a blessing from God, and that means that she has a possibility of being saved. Right? So this is at once a physical and a spiritual journey for Mary. That's a kind of big idea that comes out of this guiding question, or at least the first question in this um, broader guiding question. Why does the book structure itself around physical movements as opposed to, let's say, something like chapters? It's because physical movements are not just physical. They're also spiritual for Mary. Okay? This book is about Mary's spiritual journey as much as her physical one. And then what might different spaces represent for her and her readers, just to go over this again? The forest, the wilderness, native land represents going away from God, right, represents the lessening possibility of salvation. Whereas civilization, villages, English cattle, English paths represent the trappings of civilization and represent her going closer to God as well. Questions about that? Not just a physical journey, but also a spiritual Okay, this is King Philip. This is a kind of uh, 17th century rendering. I'm on the second slide here for those listening in. This is a 17th century rendering of King Philip, who is Mary's captor. Um, kind of an interesting rendering of him that accentuates, in many respects, some of the savage, quote-unquote, trappings that the, the settler populations would kind of pin upon native people. But also, there's a certain majesty or royalty to Philip as well. So it's interesting to think about both of those things um, in tandem. 
But the question I ask you on this slide, sometimes Rawlinson doesn't seem captive at all, which is interesting to me. Um, what opportunities is she given, and how did they compare to those she had in Puritan society? So, Mary says, during my abode in this place, Philip, right here, spake to me to make a shirt for his boy, which I did, for which he gave me a shilling. I offered the money to my master, but he bade me to keep it, and with it I bought a piece of horse flesh. Anybody eat horse? No horse eaters? No horse eaters? The five of you? No horse? I've been a vegetarian for 11 or 12 years, but prior to that, when I was in college, I studied abroad, and I was somewhere, I think in Belgium, and I went to a deli, and they just had horse meat, just cut up like sandwich meat, and I ate it. It was really salty. Beet red is what I remember it being. Just beet red and really salty. But I have to say, I've eaten horse. I don't feel proud of it. I don't feel great about it. I can't imagine what the horse's life was like. If I could do it over again, I wouldn't have done it. But I've eaten horse. And it was salty. Afterwards, he asked me to make a cat for his boy, for which he invited me to dinner. I went, and he gave me a pancake, about as big as two fingers. Pancake is nice. Much better than horse meat. There was a squaw who, in a 21st century context, that word would be seen as a derogatory word for Native uh, women. We wouldn't say it in a 21st century context, but in this context, it, it basically just means a Native woman. It doesn't carry that derogatory context. Uh, so there was um, a, don't have to say it again, who spake to me to make a shirt for her son of child, for which she gave me a piece of bear. Another asked me to knit a pair of stockings, for which she gave me a quart of peas. So what's going on here? What's happening to Mary? What opportunities is she getting in this passage? Yeah. She's almost getting like a job to entertain the kids almost, right? Yeah, she's getting a job, right? But not just any job. She's making something for other people, and in return, she's getting compensated, right? She's being compensated for her labor. She's being asked to take advantage of her talents and being compensated for her labors, okay? How is that different than the Puritan society she might be accustomed to? I'm asking you to speculate a little bit here, acknowledging that we're not experts in Puritan society. But how might you, just what you know of Puritan society, what would you think? Yeah. She just did all the domestic work but was never paid for it. Yeah. All this work that she's doing, knitting a pair of stockings, making a shirt, whatever. If she was back in Lancaster, if she was back in the village, she would not be getting paid for that work. Right? There would be no barter, there would be no exchange, she would just be expected to do that. On account of, we might call it the patriarchal society, of the Puritans, right? The woman is expected to do this labor. They are not compensated for it. There's no exchange in Puritan society when a woman makes a shirt for a child. It's just expected. That's really, really different. Let's talk through this idea a little bit more on the next couple of passages. So she says a little bit later, Here, I lived, a sorry, here lived a sorry Indian who spoke to me to make him a shirt. When I had done it, he would pay me nothing. But he living by the riverside where I often went to fetch water, I would often be putting of him in mind and calling for my pay. So what is going on here? In the first passage, we talked about how Mary, Mary is given opportunities to exchange her talents for money. That's cool. This second passage takes us even a little bit further. Yeah. She like gets accustomed to it, like being compensated. Yeah, so much so that... Go ahead. You want to add to that? Oh, no. So much so that... She goes after the person who is not going to pay her, right? 
she finds him at the riverside. She's like, I know where you live, man. Pay me my cash. I did something for you. Right? So it's again, it's not just that the opportunity that Mary had is to be compensated for her labor. It's almost as if like she's beginning to understand herself as the type of person who should be compensated for her labor. So much so that she's going and asking after it. Somebody jilts her. Somebody cheats her out of her money. She doesn't take that lying down meekly like you might accept a, like you might expect a Puritan woman to do. Instead, she goes and demands her cash. Okay? So that's really kind of interesting and different, we might expect, and from what we might expect. What about this third one? Then came an Indian to me with a pair of stockings that were too big for him, and he would have me ravel them out and knit them for him. I showed myself willing and bid him ask my mistress if I might go along with him a little way. She said, yes, I might. But I was not a little refreshed with that news that I had my liberty again. So what is she using in this last passage? What is she using these new opportunities to do? She's not just making money. She's also what? She's getting these opportunities. She's getting kind of integrated into an exchange economy where her skills are being rewarded with compensation, either monetary or food. She's not only doing that, she's also becoming more assertive and powerful um, in declaring her rights, right? As we see in the second passage, she's asking for her money. She knows it's due to her. What about this third passage? What does the opportunity to go work for someone allow her to do? To be not a little refreshed means like actually to be quite happy. So what is she quite happy with? Yeah. She's got her girl liberty again. Yeah. What happens is that this experience, this opportunity of being able to make something for someone else and be compensated for it, she understands and equates with being able to give her liberty, right? It allows her to get under the yoke, under the kind of presence of her master. Yeah. Richard. I just have a question. Yeah. Because like she seems to be like pretty openly communicating with the natives at this yeah. point. So like at this time in history where like natives like have some knowledge of English. Yeah, so we're in the you know, this book is published in the sixteen eighties, the experiences in the sixteen seventies. Uh, or thereabouts, the uh, natives, the Wampanoag natives, would have had several decades of experience with English settlers by now. So it, even if like the vast majority of English and the vast majority of Wampanoags weren't like fluent in one another's languages, there would have been enough mutual intelligibility to be able to make, like, to express themselves to one another, for sure. Yeah, great question. They've been around for quite a while here. Uh, they know each other pretty well. Like, shit had to really go down before the Wampanoags and the English went to war with each other. They were, in fact, like, in a peace alliance for quite a while before this happened. So, yeah, they're, they're able to communicate. Yeah, good. So, yeah, this third passage, what it shows us is that she's taking that opportunity not only to make money, not only to be more assertive of her rights, but also to find moments where she can get out from under the control and authority and power of her captors. She literally takes that opportunity that she would not have had in Puritan society, and as Emma is telling us, she uses it 
to gain her liberty. Fleeting as it is, temporary as it is, she uses it to gain her liberty. Pretty cool. Good for you, Mary. Right? I mean, the thing that we haven't really emphasized here, but that we should emphasize a little bit more, is that this situation is profoundly distinct from the situation that Mary would be in in her Puritan society. The idea of having liberty outside the control or authority of her master would not then have been available to her. Because who would have been her master in a Puritan context? Her husband. Yeah, her husband, right? Her husband would have been her master in a Puritan context. So doing the things that were expected of her as a Puritan wife would not have allowed her to gain any liberty. Right? It was just expected of her. She wouldn't have had any economic gain by doing it. And she wouldn't have had any kind of further personal autonomy by doing it either. But in native society, what Mary begins to learn is that these skills that she has cultivated as a Puritan wife, as a Puritan woman, she can actually use them not just in the service of her husband, and not just in the service of her village, she can actually use those skills she's cultivated in the service of herself. Right? I don't want to press too hard on the idea of women's empowerment in a text from the 1680s, but in some respects, that is what you're seeing here. Right? Mary is able to gain a measure of autonomy, power, agency, economic opportunity by virtue of her being in a native society as opposed to a Puritan one. Does that make sense? Questions about that? Kind of a cool situation for Mary. Now, we have to understand that she's also like, you know, at the edge of death, and her son has been killed, and her family is ruined, and her home is burned down. So like, I'm not trying to turn this into like, oh yeah, Mary's living it up among the natives. No, I'm not saying that, but there are opportunities that present, her, present themselves to her in a way that she wouldn't have had back home in Lancaster. Okay, last question. Kind of aligns with what we just talked about and, and reinforces it in certain ways. I love historical sign markers. This is Rowlinson Rock in Massachusetts. This is the place where uh, Rowlinson uh, passes her first night after her home is burned in Lancaster put up in 1930, but it's still there. It's kind of cool uh, that those things are still kind of marked on the land. So, how is Rawlinson changing as a result of this experience? A couple of different ways. We'll go through them with the passages, and we'll kind of distill them and summarize them near the end as well. So Mary says, I have sometimes seen bear baked very handsomely among the English, and some like it, but the thought that it was bear made me tremble. But now that was savory to me that one would think was enough to turn the stomach of a brute creature. Anybody had bear? Neither have I. I have had students say that they've eaten bear. Usually, you know, we have like 20 or 30 people in this room, and usually it's one guy from the southern tier who's eating bear. Any southern tier? Usually it's one guy from the southern tier who's like, yeah, I've eaten bear, because he hunts. So I've never eaten bear, but apparently it's not too bad. Gamey. A little tough. What's going on in this first passage? How is she changing? She's earlier said that the idea of eating bear would have turned her stomach. But now what? 
I think like not only this, but like we see like when she's starting to like ask for her payments and like all of this, she's like kind of growing with the native like influences around her. Totally, she's changing as a result of this. She is becoming, we might say, and this is where we're going to get by the end of this post, she's actually becoming, she's kind of tiptoeing across that dividing line between us and them. It's kind of scary, right? She's like, oh, this is weird. Why do I like bear now? It's kind of baked handsomely. It's, uh, it tastes savory to me. That's strange, right? But yeah, something that she would have found revolting earlier, she now finds actually quite savory. That is to say, tasty, right? In fact, the idea of eating bear made her tremble before, and now she likes it. Food is a really intimate thing for people. I mean, I began this class talking about like eating apples and how much I like doing that. Right? When you take something into your body, like when you eat, it's a very like intimate act. That's strange to say, but when you take something into your body, as in you eat something, that's a very intimate act. Like, you are easily disgusted or revolted by something that you eat that does not taste right, okay? What eating suggests, like what you eat and what you don't eat, suggests in a really profound and material and tangible way, a very physical way, what you're comfortable with or what you're not comfortable with, right? So earlier, Mary, without this experience, trembles at the thought of eating bear, and now she eats it just fine. What does that signify or signal to you? Just to go off of Brendan's point. What does that mean about how Mary is changing? What's happening to her? She's becoming a little more accustomed to Indian ways. She's being influenced by them. She's finding a measure of comfort in her surroundings, right? She's becoming more comfortable, less inhibited in her context, in her environment. She's eating bear now, something that would have scared her before, okay? There's actually constant discussions in this text of what she eats and of how her appetite changes. All of these moments should signal to you kind of expressions of discomfort or comfort and of her just slightly dipping her toe over that dividing line between us and them. Right? It's almost as if when she begins to eat bear, she's starting to think of herself almost a little bit more as like a native person than as an English person. Or if not that, if she's not thinking of herself as a native person, what she might be thinking is like, hmm, maybe I'm not so different from them if I can eat bear too and it doesn't scare me. Right? These moments where she's taking something into her body either of being disgusted by it or being pleased by it, are moments that signal to us her relative comfort with her surroundings and with her native captors and with her situation. So that's the first point. How else is she changing? We'll go through the next couple of slides here. She says, As I was sitting once in the wigwam here, Philip's maid came in with a child in her arms and asked me to give her a piece of my apron to make a flap for it. I told her I would not. Then my mistress made me give it. But still, I said no. The maid told me I would not, if I would not give her a piece, she would tear a piece off of it. I told her I would tear her coat then. Damn, Mary. Damn. 
This kind of even goes a little bit further than on the last slide when she's asking the native man for his money. What's going on here? What is Mary, how is Mary changing? Yeah. She's refusing to give what they're asking for. Yeah, she says, hell no, I'm not giving you a piece of my apron. And in fact, if you try to take it by force, I'm going to rip your apron too. You asshole. Leave me alone. So if we were to abstract out from that, to think about how Mary is changing, what's happening to her? Yeah. She's like asserting her autonomy. She's desirous of her rights, right? We saw on the earlier slide that she's desirous of her economic rights. Pay me my money. I'm not going to quote the Rihanna song, okay? But pay me my money, okay? She's desirous of her economic rights on the second slide. On the third slide, it's not just her economic rights. It's also something like her personal autonomy, to go to Roisin's point. It's also something like her property. Okay, we can know nothing about Puritan society, and yet I think we can speculate about the nature of property for women in Puritan society. Did women have property in Puritan society? No, of course not. Their property was the property of their husbands, or their fathers before they got married. Right? So like, she actually thinks this apron is hers. This is mine. If you take this from me, I'm going to take something from you. Right? So how is she changing? She's becoming intensely more desirous of her rights, she's asserting herself, she's gaining personal autonomy, and she's expressing that autonomy to others. She's even defying the people who have captured her. Right? Her mistress, her female master, has said, hey, give that piece of apron to that woman. And she says, no, hell no. In fact, I'm going to kick the shit out of you if you make me, right? That kind of thing. Very different than the meek, retiring Mary that would have been expected in Puritan society. Okay, in the coup de grace, the last and final statement that is also such a wonderful passage from this text, a very strange one, and such a like rich one to think through is this last uh, piece of text. So Mary says, then I went to another wigwam where there were two of the English children, the squall at boiling horses' feet. Then she cut me off a little piece and gave one of the English children a piece also. Being very hungry, I had quickly eat up mine, but the child could not bite it. An English child could not bite it. It was so tough and sinewy, that means muscly, but lay sucking, gnawing, chewing, and slabbering of it in mouth and hand. Then I took it of the child and eat it myself, and savory it was to my taste. What is happening here to Mary? Just literally at the level of content, what is happening in this? Yeah. She's becoming like an Indian. Well, kind of. We'll get to that. But I want to start at the very foundations. Literally what's happening in this and what we just read. Just summarize it. She just took food from a kid. Yeah, she, yeah. So just to kind of step back, just one level here. She is in the house or the, the kind of uh, abode, the living structure of a native woman with two English children. The native woman gives a piece of horse's feet to an English child and another piece of horse's feet to her. She eats hers. She sees the English child having a difficult time eating. And instead of helping the English child, instead of being like, hey, I'll cut that up into smaller pieces for you, she just sees it slabbering, chewing and gnawing, but not really eating it. She takes it from the kid. She eats it herself. And then in her narrative, 
She has no shame. She's like, it tasted fucking great. <laughs> it was savory to my taste, right? I took it of the child, I eat it myself, and savory it was to my taste. Whoa, what is happening here? She's taking food from a baby. And not any baby, she's taking food from an English baby. Right? What are the implications of that? Brendan, you say that she's turning a little savage here, right? But let's think about that a little bit more. What's the nature of the turn here? How is she changing? What things that were the true about her earlier in the text are no longer true? Yeah. She doesn't like align herself with like other English people. Yeah, that's one really important point here is that she's, if not aligning herself with the natives, she's turning herself away from the English to think more about her own personal survival. So in that respect, it aligns really nicely with the second passage on the slide. She's thinking about herself, right? She's not necessarily thinking about her family or her people. She's thinking about herself. So she's kind of disaligning in a certain way with the English by taking a piece of food from an English child. Think about that. If you saw that, like, even in a Burger King or something, if you saw a woman just, like, take the mother, even, potentially, take a piece of food, that a baby is trying to eat, forcibly rip it out of the baby's hand, and eat it herself, and then like rub her belly. <laughs> That's basically the, the equivalent. Right? That's a crazy move by Mary. What she's doing is she's signaling, as Roisin is telling us, a kind of disaffiliation with the English. What else? What else is she doing here? What else does it suggest this changing about her? She's thinking more about herself. She's thinking a little bit less about her people. Yeah. I kind of feel like she's getting more comfortable. Totally. In her surroundings. Comfortable with what? With, like, doing things that Native right. people do? Yeah, like you said, getting more accustomed. Okay. So, insofar as we, and this text would do this, insofar as we align um, taking food from a child and eating it yourself, with a savage practice, which then gets aligned with a native practice, right? That's the logic of the text, it's not our logic. Right? But the logic of the text would say that a native person who's a savage would take food from a baby and eat it themselves. Insofar as we accept that logic, Mary is actually buying into that logic as well. So that speaks really nicely with Brendan's point. What's happening here is that Mary seems to be, again, not even just tiptoeing over that line between us and them. She seems to be kind of like hurdling it. I just jumped for everybody listening in like 20 feet across the room when I said hurdling. It was an incredible feat of athletic endeavor. Gotta have a little bit of fun here. Um, okay, so yeah, she's turning a little savage, right? In that respect. What about her role as a mother? Okay. So we've talked about how she is thinking a little bit uh, about herself less as English and more about her as an individual. She's thinking about her own survival and less about her people. She's turning quote-unquote savage in the logic of the text. She's kind of like doing something very that is improper, right? She's doing something very improper. Uh, she's becoming more like an Indian, an uncivilized person. But what about her role as a mother here? What is she doing? She's taking food from a baby. What does that suggest to you about her role as a mother? Remember, earlier in the text, like, her whole emotional outpouring, her whole emotional response is about the fact that her children are dying. What's going on here? About her status or role as a mother. What's the, again, 
I'd ask you to speculate historically. What do you think the kind of like foundational, primary, most important role for a Puritan wife is in Puritan society? Yeah. Take care of the children. Yeah, literally to take care of the children, right? That's the role. That's the whole deal. Okay? The expectation is that you perform your maternal duties, okay, as a Puritan woman. The expectation is that you perform your maternal duties. We might call this something like an enforced maternal ethic. Right? The expectation that is placed upon you in society, in fact, this is still the case to a lesser extent. Right? But like the, the idea here is that the expectation that is placed upon you is that you don't even think about yourself anymore when you have a child if you're a mother. It's all about your kid. Right? That's a really damaging way to think about parenthood. I would just... I don't know if any of you have kids in here, but I would, just a little tip. It's a damaging way to think about parenthood, but it's a very traditional way to think about it, is that when you have a child, you lose yourself. You pour everything into this child, right? That was certainly the case in Puritan times. What was happening here is that Mary would have had an enforced maternal ethic placed upon her. The idea would have been that she should have been and would have been and needed to have been a mother, most of all, Right? That instinct is a maternal instinct, and it's enforced upon her. She takes care of children. That's her role in Puritan society. So what happens here? That instinct entirely falls away. That enforced maternal instinct, that what she should be doing as a woman is taking care of children, it falls away so much so that not only does she take food from a baby that is struggling to put it into its mouth, she also says, it tasted really good, right? So how is she changing? She's losing that maternal instinct that is being pressed upon her by Puritan society. Again, think about earlier in the text, all of her emotional outpourings, all of her entreaties to God are all about seeing her children or lamenting the fact that her children have died. Contrast that with this scene where she has an English child in front of her she doesn't, like, try to comfort the English child. She doesn't try and cut up the food into little pieces so the English child can eat the horse's foot. No, she takes the food from the baby. Right? So again, what she's losing is that maternal instinct. That's how she's changing. And that maternal instinct is a compelled one. It's a forced one. It's an expectation that is placed upon her by a patriarchal Puritan society. Any other thoughts about that last quote? It's great. You just see it in your head. Mary Robinson taking that food from that kid. Such a badass move. Also just terrible too at a certain level. But she is, to kind of step back and go over what we've talked about in this slide, she's changing in really important and definitive ways. She's becoming more accustomed to native lifestyles, native food, native ways of living. Right, we see that in the first one. In the second one, she is becoming more desirous and assertive about her rights, not only her economic rights, but also we might say her property rights, and also to go back to Roisin's point, also her autonomy as a woman, right, or as a person, her individual autonomy, her power. Right? So economic rights, property rights, individual power. And then lastly, what she's kind of doing is she's changing so far as she's trying to toe that line or step over that line between 
um, civilized and savage. She's becoming more like a savage person in the logic of the text. She's losing some of those proper behaviors. And one of those quote-unquote proper behaviors she's losing is she's losing that kind of internal, um, enforced maternal instinct. This idea that a mother should only be working for the benefit of her children. She's losing that idea. And she's beginning to think more about herself. Profound changes are happening to Mary. That's freaky. That's scary for readers in the 17th century reading this text. Why? That's the last thing we'll talk about. Why is that freaky or scary? Just to rehearse this idea that we brought up Monday. Why would it be freaky or scary to read about this woman who is losing her puritanness? What does that suggest about all of us? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, like they could lose it too? Yes, exactly, right? This kind of like really deep, scary idea, this fear we might have that like, oh man, maybe I'm not as pure as I thought. Maybe I'm not as good as I believed. Maybe there's something deep down inside of me that is part of the devil, right? Which would have been understood as part of being Indian in this context, right? That would have been really fucking scary. And this is kind of what this text is doing by showing Mary kind of tiptoe across that line. All right, cool. Thank you, folks. Have a good one.